Welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Nosipe January Padil. Nosipe is a friend of mine who has had a long career in the public and private sector. She was former South African ambassador to Switzerland. She has served on boards of Anglo Gold Ashanti, Credit Suite Securities, and Mercedes Benz in South Africa. She also chairs the Council of the Mandela University and the board of the United Nations Global Compact Local Network. Nosipo has worked in leadership positions at MTN and a number of non-governmental organizations. Nosipo, very nice to speak with you today. Thank you, Sheila. That's lovely. Very nice of you to have me. Hmm. That's lovely. So I just wanted to start with this notion of governance. Can you define corporate governance for us? What do we mean by corporate governance? You know, for me and based on my experience, it's been very much about oversight. Uh, when I speak in layman's terms, I say to keep the executive honest um, and to ensure that they implement the company's strategy, the company's policies, and, and keep a level of accountability to their stakeholders, and I mean by stakeholders, you know, their staff, right from the staff, right up to the shareholders at the top, to make sure that um, they they align with the mechanisms, the accountability mechanisms that they have to keep. So it's really um, uh, being in a, in a state where we don't interfere with the operations of the company. I think it's important for board to stay to stay in line, the governance board to stay in their lane uh, and not be too hands-on with the executive. Uh, and in that way, I think um, we become more effective in, in the oversight function. Mm -hmm. And mostly in, in private companies, of course, we are independent non-executive directors who do the governance work, which means we have no interest really Our own personal interests don't matter. Um, uh, our interests are solely decisions we made, recommendations we made are in the interest of the company. Absolutely. So you've mm. said a couple of things there that I think we should follow up on because, the, yes. you know, to your point, uh, some of the Sheila Pama Extractive podcast followers are lay persons who are not au fait with uh, the terminology. So you've spoken about oversight. What are we overseeing and why? So what we are overseeing is really when a company often has a vision, they have a vision, they have a mission on, you know, what exactly they are going to do with the business that they, they are running. Um, and also there has to be outputs and outcomes at the end of the day. They've got to show what it is that they've done. So when we oversee any organization, we are making sure that they keep their promises of performance to the shareholders who often put the money into the company and they have to account for how that money is spent and they have to be do it with integrity and honesty um, and without corruption. And I'd like to emphasize that on the one hand, but on the other hand, they also have a constitution that they have to adhere to. You know, they're, you know, as they say, uh, companies are corporate persons uh, and they also have to adhere to the local laws of the state um, in our case, we have a constitution that guides our behavior, 
we have the rule of law, we have uh, to abide by principles of equality and non-discrimination. So really the board uh, and those of us who are used to doing this work, we make sure that all these things are, are done with intention, deliberately, and the company is able to account for mm. its, uh, its, its success or its failure. Yeah, so, so basically uh, oversight of several issues with a view to complying, for instance, with sound business ethic, hence exactly. the lack of corruption, but also complying with the law because there are the instruments of the law that govern how companies must conduct their business. So the board exactly. uh, must ensure that you know, we don't offend this. But then, of course, to your point, there's also the strategic element, which is yes. why do we exist? How do we work? And what are our policies and why, et cetera. So the board really ensures, without, to your point, delving into the day-to-day, -day, that, mm -hmm. you know, all of these elements that comprise the ecosystem of the company are in place and complied with and can stand to scrutiny. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely, Sheila. You couldn't have put it better. Yeah. So you again, for for the sake of others who may not be as, as conversant yes. as you are, you spoke of you said we are of course non-executive. No, simple. That's not evident. People don't even know what that means. Could you tell us <laughs> you know what we mean by non-executive and why it's a big deal? Yes. Here in South Africa, we talk about independent non-executive directors. Um, those of us who don't have any shares in the businesses are independent. Otherwise, those who do have shares in the business are just called non-executive directors. And we make sure that we make that distinction, even if they sit on the board. Um, that means no fear, no favor, really. If you're an independent non-executive director overseeing the functioning of the company, um, you really have to be very, very honest with the executives and call out those things that are not working because of A, B or C, um, but also not be afraid to speak your mind because you're not agreeing with something that is being suggested. So the independence gives you the ability to say, actually, I don't agree with what you're saying or what you're suggesting. Or on the other hand, if you really are happy with what is being proposed, you, can, you support it. You support it, but you're not a yes person to the executive, the people who run the company, like the CEO and his team of executives. Um, you hold them to account. They must explain why as well as what. You know, if I don't understand something as an executive, non-executive director, I have to ask questions until I am sure that I have understood before we say, okay, I agree with the route you're planning to take or no, this is not going to serve the institution in this or that way. Hmm. So it gives you really, the independence is very important. And I think um, exercising it is even more important. Um, you cannot have boards that just go along with executives because they are terrified or because they are in cahoots with them because they're planning something different from what they are promising, their shareholders and the other stakeholders. Yeah, I, I think the... the um... The point you make about one being responsible and having a duty of care, but also that the privilege of being in that position, uh, of being uh, non-executive and independent, is that you are not beholden to anybody, and that no. you know not exercising that privilege is a failure to perform one's Absolutely. duty as as a director. 
Now, you know, you have had the privilege of being in a leadership position in the corporate and the public sector. And, mm. and of course, governance straddles both areas. Mm. And, and I wanted you to give us a sense of how you think, if at all, governance uh, in the public sector differs from the governance in the corporate sense that you have just uh, so eloquently mm. described for us. Well, Sheila, you know, the difference is is very little, actually, because at the, at, as I said at the start, um, in both cases, it is a form of oversight, overseeing the executive committee or the executives in the organization who are, who are required to develop the strategy and implement it. Um, the difference really is that the public sector organizations are governed by different sets of laws. So, for example, I'll give you an example that of my chairing of the Council of the Nelson Mandela University, which is really a public organization because it's funded by taxpayers' money, it's not private money. Um, so the accountability in this case it's, is to the state, to the Department of Higher Education and Training. And, and on top of that, the university then also has its own statutes, like every university has its own statutes, which will have been driven by the council. Um, and, and so the compliance part of it is really to comply with the, the, the national legislation, the national regulation, and also the university's own statutes. So the laws that govern us are different. Um, and at the end of the day, you are in service of society. Largely, you are not so much in service of, 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 of to, your, to your shareholders, and your and your customers with so the students in this case are our customers um, and the university has to make sure that it, it it provides them with a good curriculum that makes sense that the teachers teach them responsibly the lecturers and the senate uh, of the the senate is the academic part of the institution and of course the council which is very very widely representative of students, of Senate members, of, of university staff, of, um, of, 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 of what is it, um, people who used to work, who used to be, uh, what do they call people who used to be at the university now, just to escape? Well, they're alumni. They're alumni, exactly. So it's a much broader representation of people in this instance, um, and the students themselves, of course, who are also part of the council. So, you know, those stakeholders are broader and uh, and so we have to account to the students, we have to account to the alumni, we have to account to the, the minister, uh, um, in this case, Dr. Bladen Zimande, um, and, uh, but the principles are the same, the mm -hmm. oversight, the keeping them honest, um, the compliance with the other legislation in the country, the constitution, and the principles of equality and non-discrimination. So, you know, the purpose is the same really, to oversee the implementation of the strategy and to keep the university and admin honest in their adherence to national policy and practice. And of course, also other more voluntary standards of behavior that we have signed up to. Hmm. So, so really the key is that the point of departure, which is the principles of governing responsibly and protecting others who are not there to speak for themselves. Exactly. And 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 uh, you know ensuring that uh, there is respect for the law. It's the same. The fundamental exactly. difference is the law 
uh, because exactly. each law is purpose-built to govern exactly. different institutions. Uh, you've used academic, you've used private companies, and, and, and then, of course, the authorities to which uh, you know, the board would then account to differs depending who is the custodian of that that uh, statute, as you said. So, that's so correct. I I wonder, uh, listening to you, my mind was racing because I was thinking, mm-hmm. when one is on a board of a public institution, which do you point self society? Mm. Is is there a greater burden of responsibility? Uh, is there a greater burden of responsibility when one is looking? at a state-owned entity that provides a basic service versus, for instance, on a board of a listed company, which people have come Mm. together, invested, and they just want to get rich. Yes, 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 because the purpose of the the organization is uh, is different. Here we are, as I said, serving society, really uh, in the public instance, and using taxpayers' monies, monies that nobody other than the citizens of that country have given to the state to take responsibility for. They've taken that money and given it to, in this case, the university. So I think there's a, for me personally, and let me speak for my personal email, the council members may feel differently. Um, It almost feels like an additional responsibility when it's taxpayers' monies, you know, um, because people work hard for that money that they give to the state. And in our countries, you know, people often don't get back for themselves uh, the kind of services that I, I would say a free health service, which is in some countries the case, that taxpayers give get a free health service or they get a free education. In this instance, it really... There's not much benefit for the for the taxpayers for themselves, and so and I think that's what creates the additional sense of responsibility for those resources to be spent um, responsibly, uh, accountably, um, and and for us to be able to say that we are satisfied that the university has spent taxpayers' money responsibly, you know. Mm. Yeah. So. You know, um, I guess governance, like everything else, evolves because with time we are confronted with different complexities. We understand things better. We create new laws. So we we find gaps. More yeah. recently, we we've had this advent of ESGs. How has that affected the governance landscape uh, and function, in your view? Yeah. You know, the environment, social and governance, which is what ESG stands for, um, framework has, in my view, really positively affected um, uh, companies and even, even, even universities or other public institutions. I mean, the, the ESG framework was preceded by the SDGs, if I have it correctly, Sheila, and please, I stand to be corrected on this, but this is my understanding. And we all were very pleased when the United Nations invited the private sector to participate in shaping the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, in 2015 when they adopted them. Um, I think this enhanced private sector awareness of social, environmental, and governance issues. Um, I mean, if you look back at the way the United Nations work, it's always focused on uh, on sovereign governments, um, 
if you look at all the conventions, uh, I served up once upon a time for 12 years on the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And most of those conventions were just targeted at governments, but not necessarily at the private sector. So private sector involvement in the shaping of the SDGs was a real breakthrough for the UN when they invited them. And so the SDGs represented a great framework for doing business to achieve a greater purpose than simply making profit. And to the extent that this is um, this is benefiting our society, I would say that the ESG frame and the SDG frame have both very positively have, um, influenced the way um, corporates do business uh, today. Mm. So... Uh, there is influence and there is, if you wish, improvement, and then there is emphasis and there's change. I mean, when you think of this uh, ESG framework, mm. do you see it as inherently improving or it's just a, a kind of a sharpening or a, a changing of emphasis? Is, is, is it that material? Well, I think it has become material. Um, because shareholders started getting involved. You know, they talk about shareholders, shareholder activism at the moment. Um, and, I, and I speak from my absolute experience of having been part of a big listed company pushing the SDG agenda um, very, very hard. I think it fell on some very listening ears, but it also fell on some deaf, deaf ears within the companies. But then came along um, famous uh, Larry Fink, who was the uh, chairperson of BlackRock, which is one of the largest investors in the world. They've got investments everywhere. Mm -hmm. They came along after the unfortunate experience in Brazil when a tailings dam burst its banks and killed many, many hundreds of people um, uh, in a mine. And, and that pushed the private sector because this investor came and said, look guys, there is, um, we've had this disaster. It's about time that the mining industry took more responsibility for keeping the environment, uh, for, for, for taking care of the environment. So I think through shareholder investor activism, it's really pushed the private sector to take the AESG lens more seriously. Um, and here in South Africa, it was really welcomed by many companies who had lots of conferences that we all attended. Um, uh, and then there was another movement called Shared Value that also started um, uh, advocating for a more shared value approach of for companies, uh, a more mm -hmm. social approach to doing business um, by keeping the livelihoods and the interests of ordinary people, communities in, 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 in their strategies, and also by taking big custodians for the environment. Mm -hmm. So I no. think that push really helped um, the private sector. And I can say now they're not quite there yet. There's still a lot of work to be done, but the ESG agenda is, is one that is on the strategy now and they're integrating it in the strategy. Um, and it's it's proving to be, to be useful for them as well because there are material risks if you don't do that, you know, if you, if you don't follow the ESG frame. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I, I think you make two interesting points. The one being that, when you have a multi-billion fund manager like BlackRock taking a position, mm. but not just taking a position, but also saying to their investors, 
we will be wanting to see your ESG strategy before we find yes. you. That will move the needle because to your point, it is material to whether exactly. or not companies can raise uh, finance. So so their blog rec, uh, put their money where their mouth was and, and forced everybody to come along. But Absolutely. I think the, the, the other one is also the element of risk, the recognition yes. of the absence, the risk to companies of not embracing this in part because of ratings, but also in, in, in part because of brand positioning and, and, and cost of borrowing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it teaches us something we often forget, which is that if it hurts, somebody's going to do something about it. There exactly. has to be consequences. And here, I think, is the, the potential perception of consequences um, that has made companies think, I can ill afford this. And boards have taken the view and said, look, folks, this is a risk. How are you addressing it? And then the executives will naturally follow. My sense is that that was very important. I mean, Absolutely. so... so on the balance, we recognize that ESG addresses, among others, social risk and others. But, but when you wear your head as a, a corporate uh, director, do you do you think of ESG, the framework, as being a tool for strategizing or a tool for managing risk? Where would it lie in that matrix of a board's responsibilities? Yes. So, 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 what we've done in the, in here, certainly on the boards that I've sat on, is that we have taken the ESG Sustainable Development Framework, and I, 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 I sort of talk about them at the same time because I think the one really influenced the other. The, the SDGs influenced the ESG uh, uh, to make sure that the companies integrate these into their strategy to say that when you develop a strategy for how many ounces of gold you're going to produce, you bring in the ESGs to say, okay, if I'm going to produce so many ounces of gold, or in the case of Mercedes-Benz, we are going to produce so many cars, you know, what are the cofactors that are going to uh, influence how you make those cars? Take into consideration issues of safety, take into consideration issues of human rights, take into issues of, into consideration of environmental degradation and even gender equality and factor all those in to your strategy. So to answer your first question, I think real influence on, on the strategy. And then take into consideration the consequences if you neglect these um, and how damaging they might be for your reputation and what the cost of that reputation be even from insurance you know to what extent is, is going to influence um your insurance uh, uh premiums you know um do you have to make provision in terms of your budget to make sure that all of these things are covered um and then in terms of the oversight function of the board then um, here in South Africa, we have what we call the social ethics committees, which is a statutory committee for all boards that are public private sector listed companies. So the, the social and ethics committees responsibility is to look precisely at the ESG issues in our oversight function. Um, and that's where we discuss safety. That's where we discuss health. 
That's where we discuss community participation and giving back to the community. Uh, and, and that's where we discuss ethical issues as well. To what extent are we ethical in the way we do business, um, et cetera. Um, and then the same uh, it applies to the Audit and Risk Committee of the board. The Audit and Risk Committee also interrogates executives about ESG issues because the risks, as we said, are always material, mostly material, and can be highly costly for a company if they don't pay attention. So to the extent that both um, both the, the, the ESG is, is now being integrated into the strategy, as well as the oversight um, subcommittees uh, of the board and the whole board. Um, and in, in some instances, we've insisted that they even be uh, used to measure performance and bonuses are based on metrics, metrics, metrics that that look at, okay, what's the safety been in the last quarter or in the last year? Um, if one person is killed underneath a mine, in a mine situation, there's a fatality, we are not going to give you a bonus, you know. Uh, we've gone that far in some of the companies that I've been in. Mm. So, yeah, so really, what you're saying, yeah, yeah. So, what you're saying is that uh, it cuts both ways. It cuts on both ways. On yeah, the strategic sure. uh, side, it sets the tone for the direction of travel, based on what we consider from a governance and environmental perspective. I can imagine environment, you know, managing of carbon footprint would be a exactly. major strategic thing. And, and that then, if you succeed, becomes a value proposition to your shareholders and your customers. Mm -hmm. So, so exactly. there you are not managing risk, you're using it as a vehicle to enhance brand value and, and other value. But exactly. then when, when you then have that strategy, uh, you it, it becomes a tool for overseeing that you don't blink and expose the company to risk. So on the exactly. one hand, it can also be a way of assessing uh, the the level of risk. And, and, and in that sense, it comes back to your original point that it has really pushed ESG frameworks, have pushed the envelope. And they have said, not only we govern, but these are the principles uh, and these are the tools and these are the quantiples of how we do this. I mean, you, 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 have, you have spoken about the SDGs and how they proceeded and they lay the foundation. Mm -hmm. But of course, we've also had this whole concept of sustainability. Yes. Um, you know, does sustainability embody ESG framework? Uh, and how different is the concept uh, mm. of sustainability from the notion of ESG framework? Yes. Yes. Uh, the way I see them is that sustainability and ESG are really two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, companies focus on the environmental, the social and the governance metrics because they need to earn their social license to operate and they also need to be sustainable in the long term. So sustainability is what I want, what we would call an outcome um, or sustainability is a long-term commitment of the company to be to do to do the right thing where nobody is looking, if you like, to do the ethical thing in the governance uh, in the governance G of the ESG uh, framework. 
um, in the social to make sure that the communities, when the mine is closed, you know, it's closed in a responsible way. It's not just left and creates havoc after everybody has gone and the machines are left there to 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 sort of damage the environment. So from a from a sustainability is a, is a long term commitment to make the communities sustainable communities that can take care of themselves when the mine is gone, on the one hand, but also a responsibility to the state to sort of say, let me close this mine responsibly so that in the long term, it doesn't damage the water base, you know, because mines, for example, I'm using the mining industry because it's a, it's a, it's it's your, your space, but it's also a, a space that I'm quite familiar with. Um, and so the purpose of doing ESG is sustainability. Um, and that's why you can't really separate the two. Sure. I, I like the way you put it, that sustainability is the end goal. And yes. the, the, the ESG framework, uh, the, the modalities and the elements around which you're going to, exactly. uh, to, to get there. But, but you also, uh, uh, albeit uh, off the cuff, make a very important point that, of course, the Sheila Kamen Extractive Podcast is focusing on extractives. But let's just yeah. be clear, ESG is not about, uh, you know, the extractives. ESG is not about all. all industries and everything. And, and I think it's, a, it's important to remind. Uh, Absolutely. You know, here's a, a final question. I mean, in your view, mm. has ESG then improved governance or you know are, are we better off for having ESG yes I think I think we are I think as a framework we are for for, two, for four reasons I've, I've put down here the first one I think ESG has made doing business more people-centered you know and I being a human rights activist and an advocate as well um I always say whatever you do in business think about the people first um the people are the ones that create the wealth. The people are the ones in the mining sector that used to go to the bottom of the pit and drill these, the minerals out of the rock. You know, the people are the ones who get up in the morning and get on the buses and then the taxis and have to drive, I don't know how many miles to get to their workplace, you know. So if we, if we put the people at the middle of it all, I think that it makes us um, more responsible um, for what the good that happens, but also for the things that don't happen that we need to pay more attention to. Secondly, I think uh, the ESG framework has also uh, expanded the accountabilities of companies to say how we need to be accountable to the state. Um, many companies have got to go through very strict environmental um, requirements to comply with what the state has said. So they have to be law-abiding corporate citizens and they need to account for their behaviors and their actions. And to the extent that that has included now, the environment, the people and governance has become much more um, uh, centered around fairness and practices and social justice. Um, it, it really has 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 improved the, the the way businesses functions. I think that reputational risks are taken more seriously uh, because companies now become uh, more astute uh, to the fact that um, if we don't do the gender thing, 
for example, right now, if we if we don't pay attention to gender equity, equal work for week of, equal pay for work of equal value, you know, we are going to uh, our reputation is going to be affected by that, and so paying more attention to to that. Gender based violence in the workplace, for example, is increasing. People are take companies are now making GBV the focus of their attention. And of course, the reporting mechanisms uh, are also very, very useful for companies. They, the international frames um, from Geneva have really assisted with the reporting mechanisms at international level. And I think that has also enhanced what I'll call thought leadership because there's more sharing of, uh, of, of information. Um, I choose GBV uh, because it is, it is um, it is it is central to my own interests at the moment. Um, I look at the research that um, one of the mining companies did in Australia, and 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 of course the report that they did came out and they made it public. You know, it would never have happened before um, uh, for a company to voluntarily decide to investigate um, the behavior of its people and then give it out to the whole world to have a look at. Um, but I think the ESG framework has really kind of made companies more bold at at at, at disclosure um, uh, in order in order for for them to change the very private secretive ways in which they used to work in the past, where everything was hidden and nothing was 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 said. So yeah, I, I think all in all, I'm very optimistic, Sheila. <laughs> I know we still have a long way to go, but I think. We ourselves, you know, are activists in the spaces that we occupy, as you say, it is a privilege and it's a shame not to use that privilege to make a difference. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kam Extractive Podcast, Nosipo. That was uh, very insightful. I'm sure uh, the followers will enjoy it. Thank you, Sheila, for inviting me. I appreciate that.